0: hey really quick before we get into the podcast we aim to bring you the most practical impartial advice in cybersecurity. so if you like what we do and you want to help us out please follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now okay let's get into the episode if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room this podcast is my attempt to document lessons from cybersecurity experts who can go deeper than most on critical topics. My hope is that you use these insights to fortify your business and grow your career, and maybe one day partner with SIFT to select your next cybersecurity vendor. I hope you share and enjoy. Welcome to No BS Cybersecurity. Patrick, how are you doing, buddy? Good. Today's a... Good day. Weekend's almost here.
1: So I'm looking forward to get some time off, maybe drawing some bones. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, man. I was so impressed with your background. You started off at Duo and now you're at Nucleus. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been on the go to market team since kind of the beginning of your career. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, playing a
1: role in sales and marketing and product. So always really close to the customers. And a lot of times, most often playing a technical role. So think of like sales engineering, helping develop technical materials, documentation, videos, anything and all things related to helping technical people use and implement
0: products successfully. Absolutely. And being so close to the customer, as you mentioned, What are some of the challenges you saw back in 2012, 2013 that maybe still exist today? And why do you think that is? Actually, at
1: that time, I was at Duo. And probably the biggest challenge was people overcoming using a cloud service. Reality was at Duo Security, we were a layer on security control. We were actually the first cloud service most organizations had ever used. So you didn't have like file sharing. You didn't have Office 365. You didn't have all these things. That was only a decade ago, right? And so the biggest objection we received was, hey, we don't know if we can use your cloud service. Like, we've never done that before, and we think it poses security risk. And you're a security tool, so it's kind of interesting, but most of that can be broken down in the fact that they just didn't understand it or how it would work, and they needed simple ways to understand And most of what I found, actually, this ties back to some of my background, is a network diagram of how the service worked, a picture, solved like 90% of the issues, and then really good documentation as well, but kind of sorting when we talk about go-to-market, like really simple things that can help people in understanding complicated concepts or new concepts to them.
0: You had mentioned that creating a diagram really helped explain what you do to customers, help to overcome some of the mental hurdles of just conceptualizing what you do as a business, how you can help their company. I mean, going a little bit deeper down that rabbit hole, why do you think it's so difficult for SMBs, for large enterprises across the board to evaluate security tools?
1: Well, yeah, first there's so many, right? And there's so many options available. And so the first thing they need to understand with a tool of any type is what does it do? And I think there's a big problem with marketing Is marketing loves to get created. It's like practitioners need you to just explain in layman's terms, like what problem are you solving and what does the tool help accomplish and do? And so I think a combination of like using very direct termed words with visual diagrams can be a really good way to help people understand quickly. Like this is how this thing works. Here's what problems it solves, like very, very simply. And I think it's unfortunate that too many times, like uh, product companies or security companies aren't explaining things effectively or well. And there might be some explanation to like, yes, more modern technology, like as we're getting into like ML or AI, but like, don't talk about ML or AI, talk about the problem that you're actually solving and what the thing does. And I think those are really, really important things to think about as it relates to talking with security practitioners when it comes to new tools.
0: Yeah, it's very important to understand your audience, to speak to your audience in the way that they want, right? It seems so obvious, but to your point, there's like 5,000 companies and 5,000 marketing teams are all doing it differently, and the customers not left off any better. And that really sucks about the market. And I think a big piece is that the market, is traditionally underserved in terms of cybersecurity, because the vendors are all saying, hey, we can solve all your problems with the silver bullet. I mean, how many companies have you seen that are out there actually saying, hey, we just solved this specific problem for this specific customer. We're not the silver bullet, but we can help you out. I mean, are there any honest companies that are just speaking truth?
1: I think there are. I like to think of most of the ones that I've been involved in to some extent do that pretty well. Because a lot of times I'm really involved in helping with messaging. I do look at company I'm at now, Nucleus Security. Like, hey, we do large-scale enterprise vulnerability management. Like, if you're a vulnerability management team, you probably, in a large enterprise, you should probably talk to us, right? Like, that's really simple. Like, oh, what's our zero trust strategy? Like, okay, yeah, we can like tie into zero trust. Great. But to say like, we do zero trust means absolutely nothing. Or to use other terms like we're an automation platform, like you can automate anything. And so I think trying to focus on what you do, what area you're in, like, oh, hey, you compete in the EDR space, that helps people determine what problems you're solving and how you can help. And then in some times, like you do have to create a new market category with terminology. But I think organizations try and do that by default a lot of times. And that's why we end up with a lot of, markety jargon that practitioners and security people just don't understand.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. So in your experience, what's the difference between a company that creates a new market category in the right way because they're actually doing something different versus the ones that just create acronyms and things like that to pretend to differentiate themselves? Like, Is there a clear thing that separates the wheat from the chaff?
1: That's a great question. So at Duo, right, there was an existing market two-factor authentication. So that made sense for us to focus on two-factor authentication. And we brought a new approach to that. We didn't call it like next-gen. Maybe we use the term modern sometimes, but like we're cloud-based multi-factor authentication. Really simple. And guess what? People bought our product. And later on, we started to work on developing more market categories. So we were involved in some of the early zero trust stuff that we believed, but like that cascaded into marketing hype, unfortunately, across the industry. And so I think when you look at new market categories, it's like, are you solving an existing problem in a little bit different way? Okay, should you create a new market category for that? Maybe not. You want to capture existing, but sometimes it's hard to differentiate yourself as well. Like, oh, you're just another vulnerability management tool. And so I think you have to be creative. But I think a lot of that has to go back to like, are you talking about the problems? Are you helping people progress within their program or the area that you're in? And that's really what security organizations need to be doing is helping navigate the noise. And that doesn't always mean that you're the best product for everyone. And I think unfortunately, that's another problem is Everyone wants to tell every company like we're the best tool to solve for this problem. When in reality, like especially at an earlier stage company, like you should stay focused on where you focus on the best. Which for me at Nucleus is enterprise, which is much different than when I was at Duo when we started, which we focused down market with small businesses and serving underserved markets that didn't have multi-factor authentication. So. You just have to understand and know your own product and then organization and the type of practitioners that you serve.
0: Yeah, 100%. And this is the No BS Cybersecurity Podcast. So if there's a market category that you're willing to call BS on, what is it? Market categories? I think there
1: is generally an interest from like analyst firms as well as vendors to create their own product categories. And we just need to stop we need to stop and we need to focus in bucketing like what problems do we solve as it relates to a security framework? What does the tool actually do? And stop focusing so much on new market categorization or creation. So I think like I was a part of helping market zero trust when we got acquired by Cisco. And I think that once Cisco picked it up and we got the strategy out, like all the other dominoes fell in the industry. And I think like, unfortunately, like, I hate this aspect that every security company copies every other security company and trying to be in the same category. It just kills me. Or trying to create new categories together. So I don't know if I have a top favorite one I don't like. I just dislike genuinely like the continuation of the behavior at scale, which makes it hard for buyers.
0: Why do you think they do it?
1: Uh, I think generally speaking, a lot of times marketing teams are not, well-equipped with knowledge, and so they want to get on the hype bandwagon. They follow what other people do. So a good example is CrowdStrike and their race cars and how everyone else started sponsoring race cars. After CrowdStrike did it, it was Sentinel-1, it was Microsoft. It's first every EDR vendor and now every other security vendor that has a Formula One race car, it seems like, right? Do you have any idea on why CrowdStrike sponsored Formula
0: One to begin with? I don't. I have no clue why they did that.
1: Yeah, it was because George, the CEO, was a race car driver and a fan. So like the ROI on that is maybe it's a decent ROI for them. I don't know. But it's just kind of comical that it's like, well, because George liked race cars, now everyone else in the security industry goes out and sponsors a race car. Maybe that's not 100% accurate, but like you see these things, like, why do we ha- are we doing celebrity sponsorships in cybersecurity with people that don't even know anything about cybersecurity? So I think generally there is just a culture that we see that in the marketing side tends to follow everyone else's lead. And I think it tends to lack with the fact that go to market teams, sales and marketing often lack the knowledge and experience and technical aspects. And so, yeah, they just start running their mouth like everyone else and doing the same things because they think that's what works.
0: How many of those companies do you think talked to a group of customers before they made that decision? And how many marketing teams are talking to security practitioners and saying, hey, how do you guys want to buy? How do you want to discover new products and new technologies? Like, Are they having those conversations, do you think? Or is it just follow the leader?
1: I think most of it's followed the leader. I think the good companies are doing market research, right? But I don't think as many as you think. I think a lot of them are following what other people are doing. And a good example is like my data visualization works. I have a ton of traction and engagement from security practitioners and helping them understand vulnerability exploitation. I have the Sysikab towel we created. And another security company I heard through Grapevine their marketing team was asked by their executive to create a towel that had a data visualization on it. Like, that just tells you how disconnected they are from like, I made it into a towel as a joke. The towel wasn't the purpose of it. It was the story behind the data visualization exploitation and why people need to realize that every product is vulnerable. And the purpose behind that, it wasn't like, let's create a beach towel. But I think that's the type of stuff we see behavior-wise. It's not only marketing teams, right? But things that you hear, anecdotes and different stuff that is just kind of comical,
0: right? Absolutely, man. And that's a good segue because you made a LinkedIn post, I believe, and I'll read the excerpt and then I hope you can elaborate a little bit for our listeners. You were talking about application security, I believe, and securing your product. And you said, What are you doing to face the reality that there isn't engineering capacity to resolve all the security issues identified? Or are you just accepting the risk? What did you mean? What were you talking about when you wrote that?
1: I talked to so many product security teams and vulnerability management teams, right? And yeah, the reality is, is all software is vulnerable. If you go to and join a company that's been around for a long time, that has legacy software, you have loads and loads of debt as it relates to security debt and likely a lot of vulnerabilities, right? And so, yeah, the reality from a product security team and a product build perspective is you likely don't have the capacity to fix everything. You have to figure out and sort through which things to fix, which things to fix first, and what things to do. You're not just going to get unlimited resources. And so I think from my perspective, and I'm trying to think back at the things people said, I don't know if you have any examples, but it's like, Yeah, that's why automation in general within security becomes so important because the reality is we have to do things better. We have to do things more effectively. We have to use more secure code base. And there's cost to getting all these things running and changing what we've always done. But it's a real reality of what needs to happen within the product security side is we have to make impactful change, but we also have to make decisions on what things to actually fix.
0: Are there any government mandates around securing applications and features and things before you ship? Or is it just the wild, wild west right now?
1: I mean, there's the SEC accountability we saw, which was interesting. So I think people are a little bit concerned there. There are regulations in relation to government, financial services, different industries, but like it's not explicit. So a lot of it is like general things and best practices that you should be doing. But there's generally a promotion of newer ways to go about product security secure by design in using a new code bases. But like you just don't change how you wrote Microsoft Windows overnight into a new code base. Like That's just a real reality of these things. So I think there's a lot of great intention behind best practices that organizations can start implementing. But there's certainly a lot more accountability out there. And I think some of that accountability is resulting in incidences, right? So if you look at a lot of the big breaches, for instance, Like, I think that's accountability in its own right now that we're seeing. But I mean, there are a lot of different compliance frameworks that require you to do certain things or suggest things, but none of them are telling you to fix everything and all things. We are seeing more aggressive man- requirements in order to take care of like high-risk vulnerabilities like SISI-KEV, which was an issue from the government for federal agencies. And now you see a lot of other organizations following suit patch those vulnerabilities as well. So those are examples of like good regulation, good practice. But I don't think there's any perfect framework. And I don't know that we should rely on like compliance or government mandates to solve the problem. I think they're there to help. It's kind of my take there. What should we rely on? Well, I think getting the basics right first. I do think that peer groups, security frameworks, you have to build a good foundation and there's many different things that you should do. A NIST has some good intentions with their frameworks that they've built. But I think generally speaking, like continuing to decide where you're at from a maturity perspective in the vulnerability management space, SANS has a VM maturity model, which is great. And then there's just a lot of security frameworks out there that you could leverage and use as well. So I think baselining yourself. And then I think there's just like necessities, multi-factor authentication, how are you patching and doing vulnerability management, looking at misconfigurations, how things are configured, least privileged access. But I mean, probably one of the favorite things I saw CISA issued, I think was like the top 10 misconfigurations recently. Or something of that nature. I don't know. I covered it and made it into a one pager. But I think really like reassessing yourself on the things that people are getting owned on generally are like a good place to start if you don't know where to start and I make sure you're doing the, the things not to get owned.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent, man. And it feels like no one knows where to start. That seems to be a big problem is cyber is continuing to accelerate. It's feeling like this unwinnable war. Right. This relentless siege of alerts and detections and and you keep adding more tools and that creates more visibility, which is great. We can see more. But then there's all this noise that comes from those additional tools and there's a talent shortage. And so you can't hire fast enough and, and hire the right experts to manage these tools. Like what the hell is going on and what are businesses supposed to do?
1: Yeah. I mean, focus, like focus on what you can control. Focus on not getting distracted with too much of the FUD. It's like, yeah, I'd love to tell everyone, come by. Like, you need a new tool. You have to buy Nucleus today, tomorrow, whatever. I think the reality is, is like, it depends on where you're at and what's a priority to your organization and maturity of your organization when you're considering different tooling. But I would say and emphasize, it's like, first taking a step back and looking at what controls that you have in place as it relates to some of the common cybersecurity frameworks out there, looking at actual threat actor data, I think like good example is like go read the M Trends report, go read the DBIR. Like it's pretty straightforward: credential compromise, misconfigurations, vulnerability exploitation. Looking at your attack surface externally is also a great place to start because that's where people are going to enter in. That usually is things like vulnerabilities that are being attacked or high risk, credentials and misconfigurations. So it's, I mean, I'm deducting and down to some really fundamental basic things, but that's kind of the real reality. And that sprawls out as well. So living in this space for over a decade, it's pretty much the same. And it, it's kind of troubling that you see the same types of attacks continuing to work. I think the adversaries are getting more sophisticated as well. But Try and do the fundamentals and grow your maturity in each area of discipline and use the tools you have at hand and automate as much as you can. You know, things like patch management processes are a great
0: way to reduce them out. Yeah. Put first things first, right? Yep. I have a question that I've been asked before and I want to ask it to you. If we can identify all of these vulnerabilities, why is it so impossible? To clean them up? Why can't businesses get to zero? Why is it this constant barrage of vulnerabilities that are open and they can't get through everything? What's the roadblock?
1: Well, I think first off, only between I think two and 10%, depending who you ask, of vulnerabilities are ever exploited, right? So it's really important to focus on what you know is exploited or what could be exploited. So things like threat intelligence are important. But the reason why they can't all be patched is. First off, like patching wasn't inherently an automated process. So if you look at the history patching, normally you would apply a patch manually. And most organizations have applications reliant on software that when you patch it could cause outages within that business, it could cause functions to not work, especially as you get into larger, larger organizations. Unfortunately, There's a real reality of things like change control and processes to assess. And so the thing is, is vulnerability exploitation wasn't as pervasive three or four years ago or two years ago as it is today. So you had a lot more time to patch and try and focus on the right things. But more recently, like these attacks are becoming automated very fast, very broad. So it's how do we go after as much of the low hanging fruit by these threat actors as possible a lot of times? And then depending on your risk tolerance, you have targeted attacks too. But that's the real reality is is like, well, we have to change to how we've always done things in relation to patch processes and uh, vulnerability management processes and move to automate first as much as we can, but you're still not gonna catch everything. And you won't be able to patch a lot of stuff is the real reality. So how do you focus on the things that matter most? How do you get patches in place where you can? But also, how do you get mitigations in place where you can't? There are a lot of scenarios where you have to accept risk or you have to put other mitigations in place because it's just not feasible or there's maybe not even a patch available that will solve the problem. So I think a lot of it involves just the complexity of software updates, patching, and in vulnerability debt in general. That is a real reality. And some of that, it does involve legacy software, how we've done things but also the pervasiveness of now we have many different types of assets. We have cloud, we have on-premise, we have distributed environments. So it's just super, super complex now and hard for people to wrap uh, their heads around.
0: Hey, it's James here. Really quick, well done for making it to the midpoint of the episode. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, remember to give us a follow. And if you're really enjoying it, please drop us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Now let's get back to the episode. It sounds like it. You've mentioned automation a few times and you're talking about threat actors using automation and saying that businesses need to use automation. I mean, are we moving into a future where there's going to be basically AI cyber wars happening? Is that the trajectory or am I way off here?
1: Well, I think cyber warfare has been happening for years. It's just becoming quicker and faster, whether it's through artificial intelligence or not, frankly, I think a lot of the attacks are not AI-driven. Most of the attacks aren't. I don't have data on that, right? But I do think that AI is a tool that can be used to do things quicker, faster, right? I use it every day for different tasks and different functions, different things. So uh, yeah, I think that the AI risk is more one, I think, from my perspective, people might see things different that like, it allows people to move quicker, faster than ever, but generally speaking, the automation I'm talking about is like, yeah, you're grabbing scan data or you're scanning the internet and you're hitting and doing exploitation very early on in a vulnerabilities life cycle or even pre known vulnerability known as a zero day. And so that just increases the severity and importance of organizations taking action quicker, faster. And just this week, I think it was interesting the Australian government issued one of the first guidances that I've seen that they're recommending patching externally facing vulnerabilities in their essential aid guidance within 48 hours. And they're not saying business hours, right? And they're not saying like anything known, exploited or critical. And then critical is not defined. So now we have this ambiguity of what is critical. And if you use CBSS base scoring, like, oh man, good luck trying to patch everything within 48 hours. So I think like there needs to be a lot more clarity that we develop around that. But generally speaking, we are not going to see things slow down. We need to get more automated. I think people that are building products need to build in automation to update products and not have impacts to other things while they do that or think about it. But there is a huge shift in culture change that we're seeing that's going on right now, that's really hard for people and organizations to stomach.
0: And I see that probably continuing for a long time. I'm curious, how does Nucleus think about vulnerability and why does it exist and why did you join? First
1: off, on my part, right, when I learned about Nucleus security, vulnerability management, oh, that's interesting. And when I talked to 10 friends, they told me the same thing a decade prior about multi-factor, like, Oh, that's a market that's been around for decades. Nobody cares about it. It's been neglected. Those are all the things you actually want to hear. When you join a startup, that's disruptive and building newer technology, right? And so the thing that was interesting to me was, you know, I just started to see that some of the trends seemed to start shifting towards exploitation. And I had helped build and scale up Blue Mira. And I I was part of kind of incident response and same thing with Duo with MFA being sales engineer, where like we would have a customer or a prospect that has an incident, right? They get hit with like the exchange attacks, I think of 2021 or other attacks externally facing where like they just had no fight chance. And so it's pretty evident around 2020, 2021, the COVID time time timeframe that like, external exploitation mass exploitation became a thing i think we had it a few times before with Heartbleed and maybe some others but like not at the speed and the level in which we saw with the exchange attacks and log4j and so i think for me it's like i kind of saw something was changing it seemed like it felt like things were right in the right timing And then the founders just hearing, you know, their background and story coming out of the federal space and doing vulnerability management for a long time and wanting to help organizations do it better and doing it that's really focused on large-scale automation and threat intelligence first. And all those things kind of culminated to me being like, yeah, let's go. Let's focus on this new opportunity and spend time in the vulnerability management space.
0: Yeah. What is Nucleus doing different when you have conversations with customers and they think, of course, they come into that conversation, they think you're just like everybody else. What do you say? What is the differentiator for Nucleus?
1: Well, I think a few things first, right? Is like, okay, where do we focus our effort? Like large scale enterprise organizations, right? That tend to have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees. So, first off, it's like being able to aggregate and normalize and automate the ingest of all that data and getting all the asset and vulnerability intelligence into a single space. We do very well and we do it very fast and quick. And then we layer on threat intelligence and we partnered with Mandiant. So every customer gets visibility into that. We have other things. But really, I think in relation to the automation side, it's like really quick time to value of getting all your data and seeing it being able to really focus on the practitioner and how you're going to push out this information across your organization and your teams, and then giving them each access to what pieces of technology they own. Because the reality is that large enterprise, like the vulnerability management team is just a facilitator. Like, hey, I have this data and this information. It tells you that there's some vulnerable things, but ultimately it's the teams that own the patching that need to take action on that. So you can only advise. And so that's what we do really, really well. And we built things, something called asset group access controls that allows you to push out the information and allow people to get access to their assets that then they can see all their vulnerability and all the risk and they can take ownership over that. So that's really what needs to happen in vulnerability management is pushing that responsibility out over. Not only responsibility, but most people don't have visibility stuff, right? And so that's the challenge is like vulnerability management, the visibility of the risk and the vulnerability and the threat needs to be accessible throughout the whole organization with anybody that own system. So those in some ways, I'd say, are some of the differentiating factors with Nucleus. I could probably go on and on, but really intimately understanding the problem and building tooling to support at large scale
0: is there a way to quantify risk into dollars and cents for let's say a CEO of an organization he's not going to really care about the cyber risk and all the technical jargon is there a way to get a snapshot that says hey we've got 6 million in risk and if we spend 1 million on these three solutions we'll be able to reduce that to 2 million in risk like is there a way to do that there technically is. There's organizations
1: that do risk quantification. Pretty normal business practice. I'm not saying that it's bad. I think that sometimes people want to risk quantify threat. And unfortunately, like that's not how threat actors work. So good example is I talk to product security teams all the time. We want to risk quantify patching our vulnerabilities and do it based on a dollar value based on our product revenue. Well, hey, maybe this product doesn't have that much revenue, but like all of a sudden a product that's in thousands of customers' environments has a vulnerability that's being exploited and you choose not to patch it because your risk quantification dollar value was too low. Like, good luck, have fun with the SEC. So I think I would say I'm not opposed to risk quantification. I just think you have to be very careful in trying to use that to replace like fundamental, basic, like, intelligence-led decisioning and prioritization to fix things. And I think people are looking for a silver bullet to do all of it in one. And I really think that's, like, the wrong approach.
0: Yeah. This is something that I'm sure people have talked about at length. And it seems to make sense on the surface when you think about how do we align cyber with business objectives more closely. Like there seems to still be a clear divide between cyber and the business objectives. And it seems like quantifying risk into dollars and cents would maybe make it more closely aligned. But to your point, that's just not how cyber works. And so it seems like there's not a a bridge.
1: Oh, I think there's a balance, right? Like I think doing it from a level of high level perspective of like, how do you bucket things? How do you determine things that you just have to do versus things that you might want to quantify? And I think that too many times that gets blurred. So I don't want to say I'm opposed to risk quantification. I just think when we're getting down to a vulnerability management level and doing it to vulnerabilities, there tends to be this analysis that like we're going to use that now to make all our decisions and all these high risk threats get overlooked because that number spits out and it doesn't tell us we should take action because it's not that much money. But I think like, yeah, it's impossible, maybe not impossible, but it's hard to understand that a threat actor might use something that's exploited that might not be in your risk quantification formula on impact, right? And the next thing you know, you're just completely screwed.
0: Yeah. Are there any incidents that have really captured your attention where you followed them closely and and wanted to understand exactly what happened?
1: To be honest. At the trends in regards to instances but i try and not jump on the ambulance chasing away again and, and consume every piece of data there's so many incidences there's so much going on and like it's interesting to see the trends as far as how they're caused like initial attack vector what other techniques they're using but like i'll leave like the incident response ir firms like Mandiant, the dbir you know and i get insight from communicating and talking with those orgs too over time in different people. But I think it's like, man, so much of it is sensational. It's the same thing the last decade. I mean, I could tell you over and over again, phishing, credential compromise, vulnerability exploitation, human error, misconfigurations, right? So same record. Maybe something's changed because now we use cloud. Maybe some new technologies. But I really try and stay away from individual newest vulnerabilities. I'll pay attention to it. I'll read up. But like, I want to look at more trends and what things we can do to take action at a broader level. Because reality is, is like fixing the vulnerability of the day is not going to solve your security program problem. (laughs) You should have an IR retainer and you should be ready and know that you are going to get owned as an organization, right? Like those things without question, or you're going to have an incident, right? Maybe I should clarify how I say that, but those things are likely going to be true. So just plan for them and have some aspect of engineering capacity, do rapid response, have a process for those different things, have IR, have your insurance firm, legal, all that stuff on standby. But in the grand scheme of things, like we have to stay focused on building better disciplined cybersecurity hygiene and uh, cybersecurity programs. And that's what I emphasize to most people overall.
0: Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why is it that you believe every company at some point is going to experience a breach. I mean, look at the track record.
1: (laughs) Maybe I'm breach, you know, terminology, but like everyone's experiencing incidences left and right. Like I've lived in the trenches with, oh, the city that gets ransomware owned or the hospice hotel or whatever you call it, or healthcare retirement place that gets owned with a ransomware attack or their exchange server. I think I've lived it so much to know it's like it's happened to everyone. If it hasn't happened to you, like you're one of the few probably at this point. And so you better have good practices and plans in place to be able to handle that or people you can trust, right? So I'm a pretty big advocate as well for smaller organizations of how can you outsource things and have relationships that you trust that can take care of problems when these things arise. And like when I was at Blue Mira, that's two years ago, like a lot of what we were doing was just that. And we kind of acted when people did have incidences because we were doing detection response in an automated fashion, similar to a SIM, we would be there for them. And we didn't know how to help them navigate or get through the things like we would have the contacts at IR firms they could get in touch with to get help. But really, it's establishing those trusted relationships, managed service providers, and product companies and peers that you can go to when you're really in a bind. Because that generally, even without security, like that's how technology has always worked, right? Like when I have an outage of my routers, I want to call someone that's an expert that can fix that if I can't fix it myself. So I don't think security in that way is really much of it any different. And we just need to treat it somewhat in how we maybe treated IT in the past. Security folks aren't going to like, I just said that.
0: (laughs) Which point do you think they'll double click on and push back on the most?
1: Me saying something about being more like how IT is. (laughs) No, I think, you know, security and IT is blended. We see that a lot more nowadays. And so I think generally speaking, but some of these things that we learned a decade ago, right, I think we're relearning insecurity just because of the maturity of the overall industry and the pervasiveness of the challenges and problems.
0: Yeah, it's stacking complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity. And at some point, are we going to go backwards and start thinking about simplification and how do we make this easier and easier and easier? Or do you think we've already done that? What's your take?
1: I mean, it's been complexity. I think generally speaking, we're a society of innovation at all costs, right? And I think that organizations are trying to have better intention now as it relates to security hygiene, but we have a long way to go. And I think like I was laughing, but Tony Turner had a prediction. Someone said, hey, 2024 predictions, I don't want to see any. And Tony Turner's comments was like, In 10 years, it's still going to all be the same. We're still going to see credential compromise. We're still going to see exploitation. We're still going to see SQL attacks, (laughs) injection attacks. Like the most common things today are probably still going to be the common things a decade from now. And we're all going to be saying the same thing, which is like, why can everyone not just do the basics, right? And that's a real just challenging reality. And I think that more people need to take it on their responsibility that like, This is not only a you problem when you don't take cyber hygiene seriously. Like this is becoming a national security issue. So, I think that's a real reality. Is is like we are going to continue to see cyber warfare probably be the predominant approach nation states take and bad actors take foreseeable future. I don't see much of that changing. And we all, as citizens of U.S., wherever you are, country wise. It's our responsibility to help contribute uh, even to national security by doing things like keeping our own companies secure, by building secure products and by building trusted relationships and holding accountability with those relationships as well. So, you know, think about supply chain and vendor. So those are some of the things that cross my mind as important that we need to be taken pretty seriously.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was wonderful. And I think anyone that hears that it's going to resonate because it is a challenge that everyone needs to tackle. And there's so many, especially in the small businesses across the country, there's so many people who are overwhelmed by even the thought of cybersecurity. And I feel like there needs to be a change and there needs to be a hand that reaches out to these people who don't have a PhD in engineering. They're just somebody's mom or dad that is working on a business and it's successful and they want to provide for their family, how do we help bridge the gap for those folks who aren't part of the cyber community but need to be thinking about it? What do we do? Well,
1: number one, like you can't force people to want to think about cybersecurity. So I do think that awareness campaigns, I'm a little bit biased, but like October cybersecurity awareness month, I think is a joke. Sorry, for those of you marketers, like this is another thing, actually, that that's probably like my number one thing that <laughs> we talked about it earlier is like cybersecurity awareness month. I was like, I am not participating in this. And I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, but I think everyone tries to jump on the bandwagon. And it's like, we're all yelling to each other. It's all security people being like, security, security, security. Like the challenge is, is the reality is, is not a lot of people care not people aren't going to change their behaviors we need to build secure products we need to bring products to market that have secure by default controls so that you have to use mfa it's not a choice so that you have to use updates and it's automated and you don't even know so i think from my perspective like that's the thing is when we're talking about small business and consumer the aspect of ensuring that the things that they're adopting are secure by design by default becomes incredibly important. Unfortunately, I don't know that that problem is going to go away anytime soon. And so it's funny, I'll be like, I have to be careful what I say, but I'll walk into an office and just see a list of passwords on a wall still, right? So that's just the real reality that I think like, People's behaviors are not going to change. Unfortunately, we have to change for them what they're doing and what things we're interacting with, which is making sure that the things we build are secure and secure by design and secure by default. All this stuff, unfortunately, like I don't mean to be a skeptic, but like I've lived it long enough to know that we have to continue marching the good march, promoting best practices, getting organizations focused on the right things, and automating as much as we can for them, just generally speaking, not only vulnerability management, but everything that needs to get done. So people have to do less and can focus more on things that are more valuable to them or their
0: organization. And the last two pieces that you just walked on or just discussed, I think are so important. And I'm so happy that you talked about those things. Because these small businesses, they need help. But again, we're not going to change the behavior of of millions and millions of business owners. It really has to come from the people who understand what's going on and who can actually make changes into their products, into that secure by design mindset. Like That's how we're going to help these people the most. It's not building more tools for these people. It's not building all these hyper-focused on small business owners and now you can manage your whole posture. Like if we actually want to make a change, it's got to start at the top and it's got to start with the big technology companies and the government and the big groups that are saying, hey, this is what we think and and how we need to build the future of cyber and having that buy in from the whole community. And if you ever are running for any position in politics and preaching cyber, I'm voting for you 10 times out of 10. (laughs) Oh, man.
1: I don't know if I'll ever have a political career, (laughs) but I appreciate it.
0: Well, amazing. Patrick. For the folks that are listening, where can they find you? Where can they learn more?
1: Easiest place is LinkedIn, Patrick M. Garrity. You can connect with me there. And I'm very accessible. So you send me a connection request. Happy to always connect and talk in regards to vulnerability management, exploitation, cybersecurity, really anything. So feel free to reach out if you have any questions.
0: Amazing. Patrick, thanks so much for the time. No BS Cybersecurity is brought to you by SIFT.ai. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. On behalf of the team here at SIFT, thank you for learning with me.